Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news. The recent IPC report is even more, what's, I don't know any other word, terrifying perhaps. Uh, and we need to take it obviously seriously and we're tr going to try to come to terms as what it means about what can be done now in just a few seconds. Please join us with Bob Poland. Please don't forget the donate button, subscribe, sign up to the email list. Uh, we are back on YouTube, uh, and if you, I'll be putting a commentary up about what happened with YouTube soon, but YouTube, under the pressure of an article by Matt Taibbi, reversed two of their decisions against our videos, uh, kept one, moved us back from one strike to a warning, um, and anyway, we'll be, I'll be doing more about that soon, but more urgent than that is what, what are we going to do about the climate crisis? Joining us, join us in a few seconds with Bob Poland. In the recent IPCC climate report, climate scientists are predicting that without a dramatic transformation of the global economy, quickly transitioning away from fossil fuels to sustainable energy, we will not hit the 2030 target of remaining under 1.5 degrees of warming nor will the economy be truly zero carbon emissions by 2050. In fact, it's far more likely, this is me now, based on current government policy, we will see two degrees of warming by 2050 and perhaps three, four, or more by the end of the century. The planet will become increasingly uninhabitable with the population of the global south trying to find ways to head north. That is a north that over the next few decades will be even more ravaged by forest fires, food shortages, lack of drinking water, flooding, lack of electrical power, overwhelmed hospitals, disruption of global supply chains, shortages of consumer goods, and so on. In other words, a breakdown in the fabric of organized society. From what I can glean of the science, this dystopian vision is still avoidable with a massive mobilization of global resources and planning to transform the global energy system. Of course, the US, China, Europe, Canada, India, Brazil, and others must lead the way and make a political commitment to such a plan, but so far, that's really nowhere in sight. Capitalism seems unable to take the necessary action. It's far more comfortable to sit and watch the stock market hitting record highs, reap staggering profits, live in denial of what's coming, to a large extent, already here. At least for a while, if you're rich enough, you probably won't feel the consequences of climate change unless you lose one of your many houses to fire or flooding. But heck, you'll have another house somewhere to go to, or perhaps a luxury yacht. The most recent report from IPCC paints an urgent and bleak picture of the future of humans if we don't respond now. But there are viable measures that can be taken. So let's talk about the report and let's focus again on what can be done. Now joining us to discuss the recent IPCC report and how this affects the timing of what needs to be done is Bob Poland. He's the co-founder and co-director of the Perry Institute in Amherst, Massachusetts. Thanks for joining us again, Bob. Thanks for having me on, Paul. So we, we've had this conversation before. We knew it was urgent before. Um, is there... Is, is there in this IPCC report uh, even even a, a more dire sense of urgency, if that's possible? And how does it affect your thinking on what needs to be done? 
it is a more dire report. Let's just say that. Uh, I've traced the uh, sequencing of the IPCC reports over the past 15 years or so. Uh, and it actually, uh, if you looked at the 2014 uh, assessment report, the so-called fifth assessment report, the one that just came out is the sixth. They do them every seven years. And you compare the 2007, the prior one, the fourth assessment report, and the fifth. Actually, in the fifth assessment report, it was somewhat more sanguine they actually uh, reduced the urgency of the crisis, including suggesting that you could stabilize at two degrees, uh, which was all that was necessary. And you could get there with as little as a 36% cut in emissions. Now, in 2018, they said, no, 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 they, they revised it. They came out with a report that was prior to this assessment report that said we have to get to 1.5 degrees. Now, in this current 2021, August 2021 report, they're even more emphatic that what they said in 2018 is correct, that we have to stabilize at 1.5 degrees to avoid the most severe consequences of climate change that you've just described. And they've also made it clear that getting there is getting harder and harder with every passing month that we don't take adequate action. So that's my assessment. There's, a, you know, the report is 3,500 pages long and I won't pretend to have read 3,500 pages, but my sense of it is that it, it affirms what came out in their 2018 report on the necessity of hitting the 1.5 degree stabilization target and the increased difficulties that we face in getting there. Now, Speaking to people who are not as preoccupied with climate as you, who you know it's one of your specialties, and and others who really follow this, uh, I think it's important, if I'm understanding it correctly, that all the underlying assumption of the Paris Agreement are really blown away. That the, the Paris targets don't come close to what's needed in terms of the urgency. But if I understand the language of the Biden administration, they're mostly still talking about, you know, fulfilling the Paris Accords. So the Paris Accords in rhetoric says uh, we're going to we have to get below 2.0 degrees as our stabilization. So you could interpret that as being a 1.5 degree target by 2050. The uh, but the actual policies that were uh, integrated that all the countries agreed to do in order to be in accordance with the Paris agreements don't even come close to stabilize, to getting anywhere close to a climate stabilization goal. That's been documented over and over and over again. So the rhetoric of the Paris agreement is uh, in line, roughly speaking, with at least the 2014 uh, report. Uh, the Paris Agreements were signed in 2015. Uh, the Biden administration is, again, in rhetoric, committed to uh, you know, a 50% emissions cut for the United States by 2030 and zero net zero by 2050. The program that they uh, developed, the American Jobs Program, um, in my view, if everything in that program were enacted on the climate issues, 
you would be just barely within range of having a viable program. Now, what's happened since that uh, Biden program was announced in March and where we are with the debate today with the, you know, the two track uh, proposal of the infrastructure program and then everything else. Well, the climate part of the uh, agenda is getting contracted quite significantly to the degree that, I mean, in the stories I've read in the last couple of days in the press, they don't even refer to it as a climate program. It is, okay, it's infrastructure and there's issues around healthcare, around childcare um, and so forth. And the climate part is uh, getting neglected so that we aren't going to even, it isn't likely we will get close to even what uh, Biden had proposed in March. That's where the U.S. is. Uh, we can tell similar stories about China and uh, the EU, but, uh, you know, if, if we want to go in, get into those. The, uh, and even in terms of the Biden plan, as we've dus discussed before, uh, there's a tremendous uh, reliance on new, you know, carbon cleaning, sequestration, uh, uh, technologies that, you know, don't exist at, at certainly at least at a scale Right. That could be operative within the time frame we have. Uh, even nuclear, even if one wants to accept there's such an urgency uh, that maybe there should be serious consideration of nuclear, even if, and I know lots of people don't want to consider that because it has obviously its own dangers, but I don't get how that even, that happens fast enough anyway. You don't just turn on, you know, turn on nuclear plants overnight, even if you do these small models that Gates talks about. This is, you know, this takes decades to get that kind of technology online, assuming one even wants to. Uh, so, so we're, you know, I mean, I, you know, talking to Larry Wilkerson, uh, you know, former uh, chief of staff to Colin Powell. I mean, he's talking about a climate core in the military renewing the draft because we better start getting ready for the kind of emergencies that are coming in terms of flooding and fire and mass migration, uh, you know, you know, practically giving up on the fact that there'll be proper policy to at least mitigate this. I don't know if he's too pessimistic. What do you think? Well, I mean, interesting that he refers to the military. I mean, the military budget, you know, $750 billion a year, you just take a slice out of that. Let's say take, uh, you know, 15% of the military budget and move it into the climate budget. You, you're almost there, in my opinion, in terms of the level of investment that we need in existing known workable technologies. And the most, the simplest one is energy efficiency. Uh, we know that you can lower emissions very cheaply by, uh, you know, improving public transportation systems. How hard is that? Uh, and by retrofitting buildings, simple. Uh, solar energy, according to the U.S. Department of Energy, according to the U.S. Department of Energy, uh, per kilowatt of electricity right now, according to the Energy Department, is half that of coal with carbon capture. So we have technologies that can work. They have to be built up at scale, which means you need to have the investments. And I just would also say, uh, referring to the European Union, I mean, they also have beautiful rhetoric about the European Green Deal and the level of commit investment commitment, again, in my opinion, is about 20% of what we need in order to advance a viable program. 
we can get the other 80%. Cutting the military can be a big part of it. It's one of the, it's not the military one of, if not the biggest actual emitter of carbon emissions. Yes, it is. The U.S. military is the global largest emitter of emissions. But uh, the point being that to finance scale level investments in a new clean energy economy, which is, and I take that as part of the sixth assessment report, I, I think it's more emphasized in that one than prior ones. That is the that is the first project. We can talk about all kinds of new fancy things, but uh, unless we're willing to cut uh, carbon emissions from burning fossil fuels and transforming into a clean energy system, then there's nothing really else that we can do. So we have to stop burning oil, coal, and natural gas, and we use the technologies we have that work fine. That is renewable energy and efficiency. And what's the time frame if we if if the government ever actually gets serious about this, when does fossil fuel have to be phased out? How much quote unquote transition time is there? So uh, I would say, you know, less than 30 years. Um, and certainly with coal, which is the dirtiest, uh, coal should be phased out within a decade. And then oil and gas, you know, phased out uh, systematically. But we have to move on to that path. You know, as it is, I mean, Biden just uh, last week asked, asked OPEC to start producing more oil in order to prevent uh, oil price inflation. So instead of doing that, what we really need to do is think about nationalizing the fossil fuel industry in the United States. And then, OK, we will keep burning it for another two decades, but under control in order so that we can phase it out rather than having this persistent pressure. OK, maybe over the next six months we need more oil, but that should not give the oil companies leverage over the next 25 years to start expanding their production facilities. Which is what they're doing. Which is what they're doing. And they're making the arguments that, well, you know, if on the one hand, you're telling us we're, our days are over. On the other hand, you're begging us to produce more. So there is a short term issue with respect to energy supply that we cannot get to solar and wind and other renewables in six months, but we therefore need to have really stringent control over the oil, over the fossil fuel industry. And that really fundamentally should be done through nationalization. Yeah. So, well, there's two things. One, obviously, I agree with you on nationalization. We've talked to this be, uh, about it before, uh, but given the, the politics of the United States, it's hard to see it happening. Um, so what else can be done? I mean, is it a question of declaring a national emergency? Can Biden use executive orders to achieve some of this? Because he's not going to pass anything through uh, the Senate. So the things that have a chance, we'll see over the next month, uh, the things that have a chance of passing are large scale investments in clean energy. Right now, it's not to the number necessary, but there's still a chance. I know people are organizing around it. And then the second thing is to really establish some serious regulations on uh, burning fossil fuels and all kinds of fossil fuel related activities, such as, OK, if we're going to have 100 percent electric vehicles in 10 years, that's a good start if if the electricity that goes into running the electric vehicles it comes from clean energy. If it doesn't, then it's a waste. So that therefore, we also have to have stringent controls 
on the utilities. The utilities have to cut their consumption of fossil fuels by what? Five, six, seven percent every year. If they don't, then they should be subject to criminal liability. That's the kind of thing that I think is on the edge of possible uh, and can at least move us onto the right path. Uh, we've talked about this before, but I think we could go into more detail. Uh, the, the, the number one thing I cannot understand about the Biden administration and their policy is why they aren't uh, spending tons more money uh, subsidizing fossil fuel workers to get out of the fossil fuel industry, promising uh, wages. Uh, and, uh, you know, why should fossil fuel workers lose a penny when it's the whole of society that's responsible for all of this? And I know you've studied this problem. I think it, let's, let's go into it in some depth. What have you found out in terms of what the actual costs would be to, you know, to first starting with coal and then maybe into some other areas. Because uh, uh, the reason I say I don't understand it is that it would so help the Democrats in the most narrowest way politically. <laughs> yes. Well, the, the costs basically are peanuts, uh, almost uh, undetectable uh, relative to the, you know, the issues at stake. Um, you know, I've, I've looked at it on a national basis. I've looked at it for various states, including West Virginia, which is the most fossil fuel dependent state in the economy, also the poorest state in the country. So if we're looking at it uh, over the next 30 years to get to zero fossil fuel consumption or thereabouts, we're looking at about at most uh, $2 billion per year for everything, including guaranteeing a job for everyone working in the fossil fuel industry. Two billion for all, Bezos could pay that out of his uh, housing money. I know, no, but look, the, the coal industry, there's 60,000 people total employed in the whole country in the coal industry, including 30,000 coal miners and 30,000 everything else. You could fit them into a small football stadium. And then when they walk out, give everybody a million dollar check and it wouldn't have any impact whatsoever on anything else in the economy. Uh, it, this, first of all, the workers in the communities all deserve this level of support, including in West Virginia, as I've been working in West Virginia, among other states. And secondly, even in West Virginia, even in West Virginia, a generous transition program would be less than one-tenth of one percent of overall cost of, of the state GDP. Okay, two billion, but nationally two billion for yes. all fossil fuel workers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean the the, the and that is let's say tell me I'll say what it is again. Every worker gets a, is guaranteed a job and they're guaranteed their existing wage for three years. I mean you could argue maybe it should be five years, but anyway, everyone's guaranteed their pension. No, no one loses their pension. Anyone who needs retraining or relocation support receives generous relocation and retraining support. I've, I've written this all out. It's been published. So what has been the response of the Democratic Party at various levels to this? I mean, it, it's it, it, the only reason it's not a no-brainer is that there's that report with Joe Manchin from West Virginia and that phone call he had with big donors and you know, get to, you get a sense of how much he listens to his big donors and runs policies past them, and I guess those donors aren't 
in a big rush to do this. I, I don't. I guess there's still coal industry people amongst his donors. I'm speculating here. It just seems so obvious for their own narrow interest. I did meet with Joe Manchin's staff. We had a very constructive, I thought, discussion. It wasn't the senator himself, but it was his staff, uh, based on the report that we put out, I think, in March. Um, and my basic argument is uh, a Green New Deal kind of project for West Virginia would be the very best thing for the state, in just in terms of job creation and new opportunities within West Virginia, because a, a you know a Green New Deal type project for West Virginia, I estimated, would generate about forty thousand jobs. Uh, and again, we would we would guarantee the job quality for the people that are uh, getting phased out of the fossil fuel industry, and that those that's only about two thousand people. So you know you have this massive opportunity, and 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 the people in the state know that you know the fossil fuel industry is not the future for West Virginia. So let's move into the future now. Mansion has an incredible opportunity with his existing current leverage to to parlay that into you know way disproportionate numbers funds for West Virginia and so why he doesn't do it I don't know uh, but it should be an obvious thing for him to do I, my guess is that some of his predecessors like Senator Byrd uh, who was you know all West Virginia all the time uh, he would do it because he sees this as an opportunity. It, it is a huge opportunity for West Virginia. I, I, I mean, it's part of it, just the political equation that amongst the pro-Trump vote in West Virginia now is a solidly pro-Trump state, uh, that there is such, uh, what's the word, uh, religious extremism. Uh, even, you know, the, I, I just did a story recently on the role of Christian national, the growing role of Christian nationalism in the military. And climate denial still seems to be as big a piece of, of, of that belief system uh, as is anti-vaccination and, and, and other kinds of science, scientific denial, I guess. I mean, are these guys just so afraid of that that they won't take it on? Well, I think, the, you know, there is something real here. And that is, if you work in the coal industry in West Virginia today, you, you're going to make about $100,000 on average. It's a good job. It wasn't always a good job, but people struggled. The union struggled and they made it into decent jobs. The stuff that I'm writing about, I know it. I, it's real, but they don't know it's real. They think Some professors making up these numbers to impress you know, other lefties or whatever. So they don't, they don't believe it. And I, I respect uh, the level of skepticism. And that's exactly why, you know, I had a good discussion with Manchin's staff and uh, we need to be able to persuade them that this actually is the future for West Virginia. Now we have to see some discernible evidence. We have to see investment money flowing in. And that's where Biden needs Biden's program needs to deliver like now, like big dollars into West Virginia and other red states, because this is this works for red states just as much as blue states. And the people in red states are going to suffer more uh, than others proportionally due to these impacts of climate change. What other states have you taken a look at and what this transition would look like? What did you find? 
Oh, uh, well, we've discussed before, you know, I've done uh, New York State, I've done Washington State, I've done Colorado, I've done Maine, I've done Ohio, Pennsylvania, and California, in addition to West Virginia. You know, obviously, there's a lot that is distinct from one state to the next, even similar states like Ohio and Pennsylvania. There's a lot that is different as well, because, for example, Pennsylvania has a lot of nukes and they have fracking. Ohio doesn't. So, I mean, we've looked at those things. However, overall, the, the pattern is comparable, that you do a, a viable green investment program at a level of, say, 2% to 3% of the state GDP, investing in clean energy, investing in energy efficiency, just transition for the fossil fuel-based workers. Uh, you get massively benefit uh, in terms of job creation, relative to what you lose by phasing out the fossil fuel industry. Then you just have to guarantee, you know, new jobs for the fossil fuel workers and good wages and pensions. So if one looks at, tries to look into the political crystal ball, uh, the next few years of the Biden administration, uh, they, they, you know, they certainly wasn't their responsibility, uh, what happened in Afghanistan. But he's certainly going to wear it. Uh, I mean, I shouldn't say it wasn't it's partly their responsibility, but not primarily. Uh, and they're going to be very distracted with that. They're so focused on rivalry with China. Uh, the pandemic is far from gone. Um, the who knows what happens in 2022. It's it could even they could even lose control of the Senate, but perhaps it, they, it stays more or less the way it is. Um, Trying to be, you know, realistic uh, about 2022, and in theory, you don't get a climate no a denier elected in 2024. Uh, maybe you get—I don't know. It's hard to know what you get in 2024 because uh, uh, things, uh, certain things, are unraveling for Biden that I don't think he expected to. Um, what, what is your personal take on how you're looking at? these next few years. Uh, uh, you know, it's really hard to see the kind of plan you're talking about, which I think any reasonable person could see needs, you know, there needs to be a national emergency declared and, and more or less the plan you're talking about implemented. And if it takes executive orders and fights in the courts, you do it. But we're not seeing it. So how do, how do you see this thing un unfolding? Well, okay, so we are at least at the level at which rhetoric is corresponding to the IPCC. So in other words, Biden himself, the president of the United States, has committed in rhetoric to reducing emissions by 50% as of 2030 and at net zero by 2050. At, at the, in Europe, the European Green Deal, the rhetoric is even more emphatic. They want to get to 55% uh, emission reduction by 2030 and zero by 2050. So the rhetoric is great. Uh, you know, now we just need to make po the politicians match uh, action with rhetoric. So at least we don't have to argue, at least in the US and Europe, and for that matter, in China, we don't have to argue over the urgency of the issue. What we have to do is get them to recognize that you can't keep doing this by piddling uh, levels of uh, policy commitments, by piddling levels of investments, and by trading off other things, and by uh, making politicians happy by 
uh, pretending you're doing something when you're not doing it. So we just have to hold their feet to the fire. There are, you know, there is a great global movement, U.S. movement, uh, led to a large degree by young people, but not just. The labor movement in the United States is uh, gaining strength around this issue, if, if I may say. In California, 20 labor unions endorsed our study. Labor unions, including the oil refinery workers. The oil refinery workers of California have endorsed a Green New Deal project for California on the obvious point that, oh, you know, let's let's move into the future. Let's if we're going to guarantee jobs for people. OK, good. We'll phase them out of fossil fuels. And, you know, even in Kern County, California, where the oil industry in the US, U.S. started, you know, they've actually done some fairly positive things moving towards uh, an energy transition. Not enough, uh, but we have to, you know, embrace these at least these these positive signs of uh, political victories and so forth and build on them. And and the idea of this this just transition and the subsidization of fossil fuel workers, if it's more or less paralyzed at the national level, I don't know that it has to be, but it to some extent seems to be. Can a lot of this be done at the state level? Oh, yeah, because the, certainly the just transition part, because as I said, it's it's nothing. You know, in, in California, I, I modeled it in California. It's two one hundredths of one percent of California's GDP. So California could just issue a bond that nobody would even barely notice uh, at certainly at current interest rates at two percent. Uh, um, it, it wouldn't even make a dent on the, the California's budget. And that's the kind of thing that I hope in California this is getting through. And maybe once we succeed in California through efforts of, you know, really great labor organizers in the state, it'll serve as a model for the rest of the country. Yeah, I think you're right. I think a lot of this is going to depend on the strength of union organizing and get it, and not just union organizing, but organizing amongst workers who are fossil fuel workers and, and get, they should be involved themselves in fighting for this kind of program. You know, it's right. Not, and they are in California. I, I was on uh, several panels with the leaders of the oil refinery workers in California. They're great. They're inspiring. Mm -hmm. You should have them on. Yeah, well, send me their contacts. And I, I will. will. Okay, just to conclude, let's, let's pick up on something you mentioned early on. Uh, how serious is China about all of this? Because it's, you know, there's everything Biden does now is, is positioned within the rivalry with China. In their, we talked about this in the election campaign program of Biden. His climate policy was positioned in rivalry with China. And maybe that wouldn't be a bad competition that the two of them compete on who's going to do better on, on climate. That'd be a nice competition to see. But how serious is China? Coal use is growing. On the other hand, they're claiming uh, they're using it only as a transition. So uh, President Xi's program is not consistent with the IPCC. You know, they say they're going to keep uh, emissions increasing till 2030, and they will get to net zero, not by 2050, but by 2060. Now, if they stick with that program, then it doesn't really matter what any other countries do. If we're, We won't hit the IPCC targets. We will not achieve what the IPCC, as of last week, said we have to do. So China has to get more aggressive in terms of what happens within its own country. 
China, on the other hand, has been the by far the, the, uh, the most successful in developing solar energy, such that you know the costs of solar have come down eighty percent within a decade due to China, almost entirely due to China technology and industrial policy. So China has had a history of uh, uh, under, you know, uh, not going too heavy on the rhetoric and, and uh, going better in terms of their outcomes than what their rhetoric has suggested. So I think we also have to make sure that China recognizes that they have a responsibility uh, global responsibility. And yes, let's let China and Biden compete over and, and the EU. Right now, you know, emissions from China are 30% of all global emissions. So China is the biggest player in this whole story. The Chinese argument is they can't get off coal fast enough. They can't replace it with sustainable energy other than the, year, the targets they're saying. Uh, is, that, is that correct from a, just a objective point of view, or is it really just about how much they're willing to throw at it? No, it's well, it's how much they're willing to throw at it. So, yeah, I mean, yes, if China's going to continue to grow fast, seven, eight, nine percent a year, then, yeah, they're going to consume more energy. But China has this opportunity, having developed solar far better than any other place, to start using it to a greater extent. Now, yes, that would entail investing in uh, building out their solar capacity uh, faster than they're doing it. They can do it. I mean, again, the technology, yes, we should improve the technology, but the technology is there. Uh, maybe not to get up to 100% solar, but certainly to get to 60, 70% solar, we could get there tomorrow if the, if the money were there to build out the, the capacity. All right. Thanks very much, Bob. All right. Great talking to you. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news. Please don't forget the donate button, subscribe button, get on the email list, and see you again soon.